Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Welcome to the Bunker USA, I'm Chris Jones. Tensions between China and the US are worse now than they have been for quite some time. Both sides have called each other the greatest threat to global peace. And it seems like almost every day there's been something new for Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden to disagree on. So why are relations between these two global superpowers so awful? And does the future of mankind really rely on them achieving a better relationship? Well, to discuss all that, I'm joined by Oriana Skyler Mastro, a Center Fellow of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and the author of the newly published Upstart, How China Became a Great Power. Thanks for joining me, Oriana. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, it's not a light subject, this, is it? Let's start quite broadly. Some reports say right now that the relationship between US and China is the worst it's been for around about 40 years. Do you think that's true? And what's behind this worsening relationship? I think it's hard to say it's the worst relationship that we've had with China. I guess you said in the past 40 years, definitely it isn't the worst. It's the founding of the People's Republic of China, right? The United States and China had no relationship for 30 years. There was a bit of a heyday in which we were both against the Soviet Union. And so we put aside our differences. But in many cases, I think it is the fact that China is more powerful, but also the United States is paying more attention to what China is doing. One of my favorite things is when, well, generation China scholars scold me and my generation and they say, you know, back in the day, you know, we were just much better at diplomacy. And I always think, well, back in the day, China had no choice but to do what the United States wanted it to do. So obviously, I think that's also a factor that colors our perceptions of the nature of the relationship. Let's talk about the situation in Taiwan, because I know that this is something that you've written about a lot and something that you've researched about. In fact, you've written recently in the New York Times about this. Just for someone who's never heard of this situation, could you describe how the White House sees all of this compared to China? And why is the US so involved? So the first thing to note is obviously this is my perception of how the White House sees the Taiwan issue. Obviously, they might contest some of the things I'm about to say, but let me sum it up like this. So Taiwan has always been an important issue for the United States. It was initially an issue because the United States supported the nationalists on the island of Taiwan that were fighting the communists during the Cold War. We were anti-communist. Then Taiwan became important in the 1990s when it became a democracy. So then a lot of people really see it in this light of like democracy versus autocracy, in which China is an autocracy and no one wants to see a democratic entity be swallowed up by an autocratic power. And then you also have this additional issue of the United States and its great power competition with China. So that's really coloring a lot of what's happening right now. The United States, you know, wants to maintain its position in Asia. China wants the U.S. military out and wants the United States to go so it can have more influence in Asia. The United States is determined to stay. And the litmus test really seems to be around this Taiwan issue in which China is militarizing the issue more and more. They focused on building up their military capabilities to take Taiwan. Now they're doing a lot of exercises around Taiwan, flexing their muscles. 
The United States does not have a formal treaty commitment to defend Taiwan. This is kind of a technicality. We canceled that treaty when we normalized relations with Beijing. But U.S. Congress said, you know, wait a minute. Maybe we don't have a formal treaty obligation, but we're going to pass a piece of legislation that requires the president to seriously consider what needs to be done, you know, to defend Taiwan and to maintain peace uh, across the strait. So this is a domestic political issue for the United States. And it's also in Beijing's mind, a domestic issue, because Beijing would say, listen, this has nothing to do with you guys, the United States. This is the continuation of not only, you know, a seven decades long civil war, but also a continuation of what they refer to as the century of humiliation, because Taiwan was initially, of course, in their view, taken from them in the war of 1894-95, when Japan took Taiwan. So there's this long history, emotions went really high. What I can say with confidence is, you know, Beijing is unhappy with the status quo, and the United States wants things to stay exactly the same now forever. So we can contest many things, but the first sort of fact, I think, is the country that wants change is China, not the United States. The question is, the United States is doing a lot of things to try to keep the current situation. Are those things more provocative than they are destabilizing? That is open for debate. I just want to go back there because you mentioned the military exercises that we've we've seen China perform, especially over the, the Indo-Pacific. And we saw one not too long ago where the US said that a Chinese fighter jet was using coercive behavior. And obviously Beijing disputed that and, and asked Biden to stop spreading disinformation, I think was the, the word that they used. But this kind of exercise is something we've, we've seen a lot, isn't it? How seriously should we take those exercises? Or is that just pure and simple a peacocking maneuver, as it were? So I think we should take them very seriously, but potentially not for the reasons you might hear a lot about in the news. Right. <laughs> so a lot of what you hear people talking about is fears of accidents. They're like, oh, you know, Beijing is flying around a lot. They're sailing around a lot. So is the United States. This increases the likelihood ships are going to collide, aircraft are going to collide, especially because, as was noted, Beijing likes to do dangerous things. They do that on purpose to rock the boat, to say to the United States, you know, we're not afraid of something happening. And they often say to us when we complain about these unprofessional maneuvers, you know, the safest thing to do would be to not be here. So it's definitely a part of their strategy. But I'm not particularly concerned about some sort of accident leading to war. Beijing and Washington really prioritize this Taiwan issue. War between China and the United States would be a massive, massive war. So it's not the case that like, oh, a pilot dies. I don't want to fight you, but I guess now I'll have to. You know, I don't think that logic is there. If Beijing wants to fight a war, they'll start it whether there's a trigger or not, uh, an excuse or not. What I mean to say is we don't have to worry about things happening by accident. But these exercises, we need to take them very seriously because they are Beijing getting ready to invade Taiwan. And they've never had that capability before. And Xi Jinping has been very clear that he wants the military to have that capability. And he's also been clear that he wants to resolve this issue. So there is a fear that once he has that capability, he might consider using it. And so for that reason, we should keep a close eye on these exercises. Just going back to that New York Times article that you wrote, you also wrote that war isn't an inevitability. 
what can be done, do you think, not just to help avoid that massive war that you mentioned could arise between Beijing and, and Washington, D.C., but to just improve the entire relationship as a whole? Or is it just way too complicated that at the moment that's just not possible? So the first thing to note is, you know, I have no ideas about how to resolve this issue forever, right? Like, here is my brilliant idea, and then we never have to talk about Taiwan ever again. I think it is possible to avoid the war, but what we need to do to continue to deter and reassure Beijing might change over time. So that's sort of the first point to make. The second one is, you know, a military deterrent is absolutely necessary. So I like to say the things that I write you know, everyone has an equal opportunity to hate them. So I write a lot about how we, the United States needs a military posture in Asia that convinces China they can't take Taiwan quickly. This is very different than the historical kind of cost and position strategy. It's not like, oh, you can take Taiwan, but like it'll cost you. I think we really need to be able to prevent them from physically putting boots on the ground in Taiwan. And right now, the United States arguably does not have the military force posture to do it. So a lot of my writing has said, listen, we got to get our military house together. You know, we got to put some more stuff forward. We need more, you know, missiles in certain places. So you basically can rain them down in the strait and boats can't make their way across. That is the military component of it, that military people are like, great, you're tough on China. And more diplomacy-oriented people are like, oh, you're a hawk and you're going to start this war with China. Flip side of what I wrote in the New York Times, all the military people hated, right? And I got all these emails from the diplomacy people like, oh, you know, you finally got your head on your shoulders, in which I argued that we have to be careful about what our Taiwan policy is. Mm. And we have to be clear with Beijing that it is not U.S. policy to prevent unification. Now, to be clear, that is official U.S. policy. Our policy is not to prevent unification, right? It's just to make sure Beijing doesn't use force to accomplish it. But there's been kind of this like mission creep in U.S. policy in which we're like, well, we don't like it when you say mean things, Beijing. And then we don't like it when you, you know, push them out of international institutions. We don't like it when you take Taiwan's diplomatic partners. We make a lot of statements about Taiwan that suggests we want it to continue as an independent entity, regardless of what Beijing does, right? So if you say, I want democracy in Taiwan to continue forever, or I don't want the semiconductor industry to be under the control of China, that, that's really suggesting you, you're trying to prevent unification. My view is not so much, you know, whether Beijing is right or wrong, or even what U.S. commitments are. I mean, that is U.S. commitment, but it's more as a military person. If you create a situation in which you say, I'm going to try to keep Taiwan and Beijing apart, regardless of the methods Beijing uses. I think the military power the U.S. needs then to avoid this war is so awesome that we might not be able to achieve it. I just, I think the standard is just too high. So what I was arguing is like, listen, I don't like it either. You know, I don't like coercion and I don't like power politics, but, you know, that's kind of the nature of the international system. And we've made a commitment to Beijing that we're not going to prevent these other means. So we should probably live up to that commitment to give us more space in the military realm. Namaskaram. My name is Nayad. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come, follow me for a breakfast. You will never forget. Namaste. <laughs> Because you are going to make an incredible masala dosa under the watchful eye 
of my mom. Kya baat hai ma? Each home adds their special touches. Mm. But not everyone gets to join in a traditional family meal. You will if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. How's it? My name is Lassetti. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, careful. Can you see it? Oh, trust me. It can see you. There, between the trees. It's not every day you get to see a rhino on a walk. I guess not everyone is taken to the right places, but you will be if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I want to talk about diplomacy a little bit more because in your book, The Cost of, of Conversation, you talk about the factors that may lead to a lack of open dialogue between countries. And one of those factors being the fear that speaking too much, basically, could be perceived as weakness by the other side. Could you talk me through that a little bit? And do you think that that's what we're seeing in the case between the US and China right now? Yes. So I think it's absolutely what we're seeing between the United States and China. And it's interesting, if you asked me, like, why do we have that perception? And I give some psychological examples in that book, some, you know, more popular, like the three day rule. Like if you go on a date with someone, you're not supposed to call them right away, right? Because it makes you look desperate. It's, you know, it reminds me of my mom when she read that book. She was like, it took you six years to write this. I mean, this is just (laughs) common sense. Uh, But that's, you know, great scholars uh, and our common sense. But the bottom line is, for whatever reason, we've socially constructed this idea, right, that the willingness to engage means that you're kind of desperate, you're weak, you're like, oh, you know, in, in the book, I talk about you're fighting a war. If you're willing to engage, people think you think you're losing, right? Like, why else would you talk? And that leads to all these second and third order conditions. And so Beijing, as the weaker party, historically has often refused to talk as a way of demonstrating their resolve and their strength, right? And this is especially the case, given what I was mentioning before about the dangerous encounters. Beijing is trying to say to the United States, listen, we are so willing to fight a war with you that not only are we going to do all these dangerous things, but we're going to make it so you can't even talk to us if there's a misunderstanding. And we know that makes you very afraid that war is going to happen, right? So it is a maneuver to communicate that sense of the willingness to fight and, and resolve. And it can be quite effective. And that's why it creates this additional obstacle to resolving conflicts beyond just like, once we talk, can we come to some sort of agreement? Are we at a tipping point in terms of diplomacy and talks in this relationship? Well, what I mean by that is really that we have so much conflict going on in the world right now, especially when you consider the war in Ukraine and how long that's lasted for and how long that's likely to last for. But now we also have the reemergence of greater fighting in Israel and, and the US ramping up its financial aid in both of those wars. So are we at a tipping point with US-China where they will potentially be forced to talk to each other, even if they don't necessarily want to right now? 
it does take a lot to force countries to talk to each other when when they don't want to. I don't think we're at that tipping point. I mean, right. Ukraine, what's happening in Israel, everyone cares about it, but it's not presenting a real existential threat to Beijing. I mean, maybe not even, not really a threat at all to Beijing. And then you can argue not really an existential threat to the United States. So those types of things don't push these two countries together. In wartime, it's really like, you know, you have tens of thousands of deaths. For democracies, you risk, you know, getting voted out or for an autocracy. The leader is getting pushed out of power or the leader dies. And that's why you can talk. So it really takes pretty extreme scenarios for countries to be willing to talk if they're actually fighting each other. The stakes are lower now because we're not actually fighting each other. We're just sort of at this diplomatic stalemate. Now, I will say, though, I don't really see any signs of it thawing. Like every couple of weeks you hear in the news, you know, there's a meeting between U.S. leaders and Chinese leaders. And then I get all these media requests. They're like, is everything going to be better now? I was just in Beijing a month ago. I'm, I'm going in three days. Like when I'm there, I don't really have a sense that either the U.S. or the Chinese side are really willing to make any significant changes to their approaches to allow for a better relationship in the future. Talking about the future, it seems ever more likely from our perspective in the UK that Donald Trump might be elected in the next election. Now, people often accredit you know, a worsening relationship with China and the US with Trump and his foreign policy and how he dealt with relationships with, with other countries. Say he was re-elected in, in 2024. What impact do you think that he would have or again, is that an impossible question where you just have to wait and see because he's so unpredictable? Let me just offer an alternative interpretation of the Trump administration in China. I mean, obviously, the situation did worsen during that administration. But like I point out in my recent op-ed, I want to be very clear, like all of these tensions are not the United States is reacting to Beijing. Right. Yeah. Donald Trump came into power and people were pretty frustrated. They had sort of dealt with a lot of bad Chinese behavior, whether it be in the international security space, tech space, and they had had enough. Now, I understand my Chinese colleagues and friends, they asked the very honest question of, well, we've been doing this for like decades. Like, why is it a problem now? Right? It's not like all of a sudden they started building their military. All of a sudden they started harassing people in the South China Sea. All of a sudden they have human rights abuses. Like this stuff had been going on for quite some time. So the Chinese felt like kind of surprised and like it was unfair. Like, you know, we've been stealing your intellectual property for 25 years. Like, why are you making such a big deal out of it now? But to be clear, like they were responding to Beijing's behavior. My biggest complaint about the Trump administration was more on implementation. Like they thought the strategy was just to like poke Beijing in the eye. And I was kind of like, I don't like, what are we getting out of that? I want us to win this competition, not just like run around calling Beijing names. So if he came back, I mean, in many cases, Beijing, I've talked to people there who are like, well, it'd be good because your allies and partners will hate you again. And that will make you know, <laughs> life more difficult. But because he is so unpredictable, I do think Beijing just tries to keep its head low for four years. So on one end, you might see, you know, a quote unquote thawing of tensions because of that. On the other hand, like you can never discount the possibility that he does something really stupid. I mean, I, I, yeah. you ask me as an expert, is Donald Trump more likely to sell Taiwan out, right? And say, I don't care about Taiwan. It's all yours, Beijing. Or more likely to put nuclear weapons and U.S. troops in Taiwan, thereby starting a major war with Beijing. 
I don't know which one is more likely. So that kind of unpredictability is, is a bit scary when we're talking about the relationship with China. Yeah, it is scary. That's I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Let's talk a bit more about the Chinese perspective on this. Do you think Xi Jinping really does want better relationships with the US? Just say he did, and, and he went about trying to secure that. Would that not just turn Russia almost into more of an enemy than a friend that it exists right now? So I don't think that the relationship with Russia is really a factor in Xi Jinping's thinking about the United States in terms of like, oh, I could be nicer to the United States, but it will upset Putin. And for a very long time, you know, Beijing has been able to manage both of those things. And the threat perceptions Russia has about China were mainly about Chinese behavior along the Russian border. So I think they can sort of continue to have this positive, like theoretically continue to have a positive relationship with both countries. The issue, I think, is that Xi Jinping doesn't prioritize a better relationship with the United States. So over the past 25 years, that has been a primary factor determining how China behaves. They understood that if they were going to rise to great power status, you know, and I talk about this in my new book, that they really had to manage U.S. threat perceptions, right? Because the United States was so much more powerful, it could have strangled the rise of China, right, in the 90s, 2000s, the economic, political, or military rise. Now you ask, like, you know, does China want a positive relationship with the United States? Absolutely. But at the expense of what? Are they willing to sacrifice some of their key strategic goals for it? No, that's no longer the case. Xi Jinping looks like he's much more going in the direction of diversification, of hedging, you know, whether it is having independence in certain industries that you think the United States is going to cut you out of or building relationships with certain countries like Russia. So you have a little bit of a buffer in the international system. That seems to be the direction they're going versus prioritizing a better relationship with the U.S. And just finally, Ariana, to finish off, Xi Jinping said not too long ago after a meeting with Chuck Schumer that the future destiny of mankind relies on U.S.-China ties. How true do you think that is? Or do you just think that was a, a statement that he, he kind of just threw out there? I think it's absolutely true. I think, you know, as much as there is always something on fire in the rest of the world, those are all regional conflicts. What happens in Ukraine is important for Europe. What happens in the Gaza Strip in Israel is important for the Middle East. But it's not the same as saying it determines the course of the future of mankind. China and the United States are the two, not only two great powers, but the two most powerful nations the world has ever seen, economically, but also militarily. And we have the ability, uh, both two nuclear powers, to destroy this world many times over. And even if we don't do that, even if we just fight a limited conflict in Asia, we have the ability to destroy decades and decades of prosperity that people have built you know, let alone the, the casualties associated with both. I always think the saddest thing about a war between China and the United States is, is not only the immediate costs of the war itself, but the fact that I don't see the United States and China having any sort of relationship with each other for the rest mm. of my lifetime after that. And even though we're two very different nations and we have, uh, you know, we have a lot of legitimate complaints and concerns about China, 
this idea that we would live in a world in which we no longer interact with each other is a very sad future indeed. And so I think Xi Jinping is absolutely right. And I think the leaders are not taking any of this seriously, because if there was a real sense of urgency, we would see much more courage both on the part of the leadership of China and on the part of the United States to think more innovatively about how we can protect our own interests and move things forward between our two nations. Oriana, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and and like what we do, why not back us on Patreon? For £3 a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes ad-free, But more importantly, you'll be helping to keep important and informative conversations just like this well and truly alive. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was written, presented, and produced by Chris Jones. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 